what's good, 9 o'clock? How are we doing this morning? Hey, it is good to be with you once again. If you are here for the very first time, special welcome to you. Welcome to Rocky Peak this morning. We're excited that you're going to be spending the service time with us. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are usually in the Ridge, welcome to the Worship Center this morning. We are glad to have you with us as well. So we're going to go into our uh, time of teaching this morning. And so if you would, inside your program... There is a green and white message note sheet, which is not only a great tool to help you follow along with the time of teaching, but we intentionally provide some blank space there for you to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is specifically prompting you to remember as we go into this time. I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump right in. Jesus, as we've been going through this series the last couple of weeks, one thing that you have continually been teaching me one thing that you have continually been opening my eyes to is what it means that you are king. What it means that you reign in all seasons, in every circumstance. Jesus, I need to confess that there are times in which I don't see you as my mighty king. There are times in which I filter you and I shrink you down. So Jesus, I want to thank you that I can go to your word and your Holy Spirit will shatter my filters and show me who you are, all-powerful, untamed, the only king for me to bow my knee to. And so again, as we go to your word, as we go to your Psalms, Jesus, let this be a time of celebration that our mighty king is speaking to us through his word. So Jesus, I don't need to ask you to speak, but as your church, we're coming into this time and committing to listen to what you have to say. As I usually pray, Jesus, as the communicator, let me become less. Let me not be the focus of this time, but let you, as our King, as the Christ, become much, much more. It is in your name, King Jesus, that we all pray. And everybody said, amen. And so this morning, we're going to be concluding this season, this series that we've been in for the last couple weeks or so called Seasons. Now, the heart behind this series has been that if you look at our literal seasons, whether we are in fall, winter, spring, or summer, whenever we enter the season, there is only one guarantee we have, and that's that eventually the seasons will change. And if we take that as a metaphor, we can apply that to our lives and see that that's true of our lives as as well, that whatever the metaphorical seasons we face in life with, eventually our circumstances will change. And so this series has been addressing an issue with that, is that many of us, myself included, don't like that change. Many of us don't want to accept that change. We would rather life continually go according to what I've affectionately been calling our plan. And so the trap that many of us fall into is that we begin to put all of our efforts into trying to stop the circumstantial change we face in life. We put in our time, our resources, our finances, our physical efforts, our mental, our emotional, even our spiritual efforts in an attempt to try to control the seasons in our life and in an attempt to try to bring ourselves into a circumstantial stability. And the joy joyful question I've been asking is, how well has that been working out for you? We fall into this trap, this lie that if only I could have circumstantial stability, 
then I will be succeeding at life. If nothing ever rocks the boat, then I will finally be winning. And so what we're doing in the series is we've been going back to Scripture and we've been seeing that the Bible very loudly and clearly teaches us two core truths. One, it talks about that as long as we are on this side of heaven, our circumstances will always be changing. We've been calling that the ever-changing But the second truth and the more beautiful one is that the ever-changing in our circumstances allows us to see what is truly never-changing in our lives, and that's the character of Jesus himself. And so throughout this series, we've been learning to not root ourselves in the ever-changing, but to root ourselves in what is truly never-changing, the character of Jesus. And so our guide throughout this series has been the Psalms in the Old Testament. And there in your note sheet, we've got a section titled, The Psalms, a Recap. We've been going over this briefly each week so that we understand the bigger role of the Psalms in Scripture. And for the final time, let's hit this real quick. And so the Psalms in the Old Testament, the first line there, are a call to worship. And so what it means to worship is that in whatever form worship takes, whether it's singing as we did, whether it's the way you think or the way you act or the way you lead your family or the way you are at work, whenever we are worshiping, what we are doing is we're declaring God's never-changing truth. Worship is a declaration and a celebration of what will never change about God. And then the Psalms also tell us why we have reason to worship in every season. And that's the second statement, because of God's true character. We often filter God and shrink him down or distort him. And what the Holy Spirit does through his word, and particularly through the Psalms, is that it shatters our filters The Holy Spirit shows us the truth about God, that he is big, that he reigns, reigns, that he is untamed. And finally, the Psalms teach us how we can worship. And the last statement is that we worship through authenticity. Whether we are in a season of joy or whether we're in a season of suffering and deep lament, The Psalms teach us that we can come to the Lord as we are. And no matter the season we're facing, we can find the way to worship through God in our lives. And so as we've been through this series, we've looked at Psalm 29 that presented an unfiltered view of God as king over all creation and how he reigns over every season in our lives. Last week, we looked at Psalm 22 and the never-changing truth that the presence of the Lord is with us even in our darkest and hardest seasons, that we can still worship through the language of lament. And if you're new to Rocky Peak or if you just missed one or two of one or both of those messages, I'd love to encourage you to jump on our YouTube channel and be able to see that in the context that it adds. And so today, as we wrap up this series, we're going to be looking at a psalm that is an unbridled expression of joy. The psalm we're going to be looking at this morning, the psalmist is experiencing a deep 
joy, a genuine joy, one that is created in excitement in him in which he can't shut up about the object of his joy. And we're going to see that he is so joyful because he has experienced that no matter what changes in his life, the voice of God is always with him and the voice of God is there through the written word, the scriptures, the Bible. And because of that, the psalmist experiences joy. And so how he expresses this artistically is in the form of a love song. Y'all, we're looking at a love song this morning that the psalmist is expressing. And so there on your note sheet, you've got a section titled The Love Song. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got an app, turn them on. We're going to go to Psalm 119 in the Old Testament. The 119th Psalm. Now, as we're talking about a biblical love song, the first thing I want to do is we got to talk about love songs in general, family. I love love songs. And I understand how redundant that sounds, but I love love songs. I don't know why, I just do. I love all kinds of love songs. I love the love songs that are on a piano or acoustic, very silent and somber. I love the love songs that are a giant ballad or an arena rock with a full band. I love love songs that are lyrically beautiful and heartfelt. I especially love cheesy love songs. The cheesier the better. Because when I hear a cheesy love song, it takes me back to junior high when I would hang out at the roller rink at Skateland and they would do something called couple skates. Am I alone in that? Y'all remember couple skates. Now, the funny thing is sometimes people ask, well, what are your favorite love songs? And the truth of the matter is they rotate. It changes based on the season that I'm going through. And so I thought about this for right now, and I was able to make a list of my current top four love songs. You want to hear some of that? Do you want to hear a little bit? So here, and they're not in any particular order, but here's the first one. That's right, wake up. that down. So you're awake now. The four tops are incredible in any, in any situation, but it's impossible to hear that song and not immediately become happy. That's what I love about it. Now the second love song is kind of a classic. A lot of you, it's been remade a few times, but I wanted to go back to the original of it. So Nick, if you would. I like how many of you went, oh, with that one. You can pull that. So do you know why I love that song? Is when I was younger, there was a show called The Wonder Years on. And that was a song that they often played for uh, Kevin and Winnie and their relationship. And so it, uh, it uh, takes me back to that. 
Now, the next one is actually one that's very special to me because it was my first dance with my wife at our wedding. Yeah, oh, I'm awesome. As we... <laughs> if you would, Nick. And then she asked me Do I look all right? And I say yes You look Clapton, and you can't go wrong with that, right? Now, the next one <laughs> very much is a product of its time, and what I mean is the middle of the 90s. <laughs> and when you hear it, you're going to understand what I mean by that, but you know, it's easier just to play it, Nick, if you would. Every moment spent with you is a moment I If you're unfamiliar, that was Aerosmith, and that was the lead soundtrack to a movie where they sent Bruce Willis to stop a meteor from destroying the Earth. That is as 90s as it gets, Bruce Willis and Aerosmith. And I could go on and on, but that's just the taste. And I love love songs, but truly and sincerely, what I love about a good love song is that it is an artistic expression of commitment. It is an artistic expression of devotion. And if you look at love poems or love songs, or passionate writing throughout all of human history, they share that common foundation, that it is an expression of devotion towards someone or something. And that is exactly what Psalm 119 is. It is a love song because Psalm 119 is an expression of the, uh, of the uh, writer's devotion and commitment to God's voice through the written word of God. And so before we jump in, let's understand a little bit of the composition of Psalm 119 in general, that this is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. Psalm 119, which is a love song about God's written word, is the longest chapter we have. There are 176 verses. It is composed as an acrostic, where each stanza is reflecting a letter in the Jewish alphabet. And it is a song of joy, because the psalmist is expressing that no matter what changes in my life, God's voice is is always with me, is always leading me, is always empowering me through his written word. And we're not fully sure who wrote this psalm. There's some people that think David did later in his life. There's some people that think the psalmist was, uh, was an author after Israel had been conquered and exiled. But what we do know is that whoever the author was had experienced significant hardship and tough seasons. And yet in the midst of that, he is still celebrating what never changed
changes is the power of God's voice through his written word. And so throughout this psalm, 176 verses, just about each verse declares the beauty of God's word, God's law, God's precept, God's command. Again, all of it being synonymous with his voice through his written word. And so with that, let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to be starting at verse 1. Starting in verse 1, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. Now let's stop right there and read through it again. And as you are used to with me, I'm going to ask you to mark this up a little bit. So going back to verse 1, blessed are those whose ways are blameless. Would you underline or highlight the word blessed? Now, if you remember, we addressed this last week that biblically blessed is much bigger than we often give it credit for. That we are not simply blessed when things are going well. But what it means to be blessed is that because of the work of Jesus, we can now live in right relationship with God. Because of what Jesus has done by taking away our sins, by transforming us, by giving us brand new life, we can now stand before the Lord. And whether you are in a joyful season, whether we are in a season of lament and suffering, the seasons and our circumstances do not negate the work that Jesus has already done. And so in every season, we as God's people are blessed. And so as he declares that, He says that blessed are those whose ways are blameless. That doesn't mean to be perfect, but it means that you are being transformed. And how are you transformed? Through God's voice. At Rocky Peak, we often talk about that we are here to listen and follow the leading of Jesus in our life. And God's voice is heard through his written word. And so in verse two, again, blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Would you underline or highlight the word heart? They do no wrong, but follow his ways. And so again, Jewish teaching, Jewish thought, a little bit of context here, that heart didn't just mean emotions. Emotions were a part of it, but in Jewish teaching, your heart was the control center of your body. Everything that makes you you, the reason why you think and act the way you are, would be referred to as your heart. And so with that context, we see the power of this statement that the psalmist is saying, everything I am, Not 70% of me, not 80% of me, but 100%. Everything I am will seek you in your written word. And then as we read the next several verses, you're going to hear the psalmist over and over talk about the joy that comes from obeying God's word. And so whenever you see the word obey or a form of the word obey, underline it, 
highlight it. See in just a few verses how many times he goes back to that act. Verse 4, you have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. Verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart. Again, everything that I am. I will praise you with an upright heart and learn your righteous laws. Verse 8, I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. Oh, so let's stop right there. And so his joy is manifesting itself in actual action. He is not simply saying with his words that God's word is a joy in my life, but he is doing something about it. He is responding to God's voice in his life, and his response to joy is to obey God's leading. And this is a big paradigm shift for so many of us because culturally, one of the filters we have picked up is that in general, when we view obeying or obedience, we often don't view it in the positive. We often struggle in our pride with this concept of obeying because we've been hurt by it. In our lives, there have been people that have demanded our obedience that have not had our best interests at heart. We have struggled at times because we feel that obeying would mean I would lose my power or I would lose my individuality. And so what the psalmist is expressing is that obedience in God's eyes is not a loss of life, but it's where we gain it. That the natural overflow of joy that God's voice is with me is that we will obey because God's character is good. He loves us. He wants what's best for us. That is what the psalmist is experiencing through God's voice. And so that was the first stanza of this psalm. And so there on your note sheet, there's a fill-in. So the question is, so far, what have we experienced through the psalmist? And your fill-in is this. The psalmist is expressing a genuine love for God's word. The psalmist is expressing a genuine love for God's word. You can feel his emotions, can't you? And what's beautiful about this is this isn't what we would call stereotypical church language. This isn't Christianese. This isn't a forced statement of affection. This is genuine. This is coming as the overflow of him having direct encounter with God's voice through the written word. And because of that, he can't help but express joy regardless of the season he's in. I like how there on your note sheet, Author Kevin DeYoung puts it, Surely it is significant that this intricate, finely crafted, single-minded love poem, the longest in the Bible, is not about marriage or children or food or drink or mountains or sunsets or rivers or oceans, but about the Bible itself. None of those things are wrong. 
In fact, many of those things have been the object of incredible love songs. But this author is expressing his devotion and his passion to God's never-changing voice that is found through his written word. And so now we're going to read the second stanza. And he's going to now start to take the role of a wisdom psalm in which he models and instructs the people of God. How do we live right? How do we encounter God's transformation? So starting at verse 9, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? Would you underline and highlight that? Now again, we need a bigger view of this word purity that often when we hear it, we immediately go to sexual purity. Now that is an aspect of it, but the reality is in a big picture context, purity has a lot to do with blessed, meaning that purity is holiness, is transformed into the image of God to reflect Jesus. And so in essence, he's saying, how can a young person, or the truth is, how can a person of any age experience transformation into a reflection of Jesus? How can a young person stay on the path of purity by living according to your word? Verse 10, I will seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Would you underline or highlight all of verse 11? I have hidden your word in my heart that I will not sin against you. And so again, he's talking about the fact that scripture is more than a good idea. It is the foundation from which our lives are to be built upon because it is the voice of God. Remember, going back to the first week of season, Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord which reigns and brings creation into submission, that is the voice that is revealed in his written word. When he says, I have hidden your word in my heart, he's not simply memorizing God's word. Now that is a great practice. He's not simply memorizing it, but what he's declaring is that my entire life will be devoted to responding to your voice. My entire life will be devoted to your word. And then he goes on in verse 12, praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. From your mouth, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect. Would you underline that? I will not neglect your word. And so he's worshiping. Remember, worshiping is a declaration of what is never changing about God. And what is he declaring? That regardless of our season, that regardless of our circumstances, our King, our Jesus is not silent. He is not distant. He is not hidden. His voice is with us 
always, and it's reflected through his written word. And so he celebrates it, and he also dwells on it. That's what he means by by meditating on it, that this is a gift that God has given us, and I want to spend time with this gift. And finally, as he declares that I will not neglect it, he is leading us in a powerful truth that the psalmist has realized that to neglect the word of God is to neglect God himself. The psalmist has realized that to neglect the word of God is to neglect God himself. And what's so amazing about his joy is we're going to be stopping here for this morning and we only looked at 16 verses. There are still 160 verses that are declaring the joy found in the voice of God expressed through his written word. There on your note sheet, I jumped ahead a little bit just to give you some other examples. In verse 103, the author says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. In verse 167, he says, I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. What a beautiful love song. What a beautiful poem, what a beautiful expression of devotion to God himself and his voice that is revealed through his written word. And so as I've been doing throughout this whole series, before we leave this psalm, Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it expands our sight. And may it continue to teach us to see your word unfiltered and untamed. Amen. Now, as we leave this psalm, we need to address a difficult truth. And for many of us, we need to address an uncomfortable truth. And hear my heart as we go into this. The idea of addressing this truth is not to shame and is not to have you live in guilt. But something that we often talk about at Rocky Peak is that transformation begins with authenticity. And so if we're not willing to be honest about where we really are, then we're not going to experience the transformation that God has for us. And so here's what we need to address, is that there are many of us who are committed Christ followers, who have given our lives to Jesus, who have worshipped him in many ways, who have followed him for a length of time. And if we were to be completely honest, we would say that I have never or rarely ever felt about the Bible that way. There are many of us that would say in our walk with God, we read the psalmist and we wonder, is he talking about the same Bible that I have? There are many of us that we would talk about how we connect with God and how we hear God. And it's through beautiful ways. And we get excited. We would say, I love worship. 
I love serving. I love meditating and journaling. I love my life group and that community. I love listening to teaching. And we would go on and on. And these are all beautiful disciplines that lead us to the Lord. And we would express these with excitement. And then we might get asked the question, well, how do you feel about the Bible? Ah, it's all right. You know, it's there. It taught me once of what I need. And the reality is that as we look at Psalm 119, for so many of us, that is a brand new paradigm, isn't it? Because if we were to express in a couple of words, how many of us, not all of us, but how many of us view God's Bible, we probably would use the words that the Bible is something that is occasional and is optional. The reality that has happened in the church of Jesus is that we have bought into this myth that somehow we can have a thriving relationship with Jesus without regularly engaging with his word. And the truth of the matter is we are trying to live spiritually in a way that Jesus himself could not. Think of it in the sense of food. Many of you know food is a deep passion of mine. I'm not one to miss a meal. Because we all know what happens if, we're not properly, if, we're, if we don't have proper nutrition going on. We don't function right. And we would all sit there and go, it would be absurd to not be eating regularly because it's not just what your body, but your mental state, your emotional state needs to be able to be at full capacity. Well, the reality is if we look at the Bible as spiritual food, there are so many of us that would view eating as optional. That I eat once a week. That I eat once a month that I eat once a year, that when I do eat is because somebody else is cutting it up and force-feeding me. And so what we need to see is, again, the heart is not, God's heart is not to guilt and shame us. But the reason why the Lord brings a holy conviction to us at times is because he wants to show us that he has a much bigger vision for our lives. He is not here to shame you and push your head further in the mud. He is here to show you, I've got bigger plans for you than you could possibly imagine. And so what we see through this psalm is the psalmist has experience and he is declaring through worship and he is modeling for us that God's voice, that God's written word is not an add-on to our Christian life, but it is absolutely essential. God's word is not an add-on on, but it is absolutely essential. And in the next fill-in, we're going to hit the why, what this psalmist has encountered. And so your fill-in is this. The psalmist is receiving life from God's word. The psalmist is receiving life from God's word. The presence of God is where we experience life. 
It's where we receive life. It's what we lost due to our sin. It's what Jesus restored due to his grace, his death, and his resurrection. And so what the psalmist is expressing, the joy he's experienced, is that God's written word is not a soulless set of rules, a spiritual checklist for me to follow mindlessly. But what he has experienced is that the voice of God through the written word leads me directly into the presence of Jesus. And his word leads me into Jesus' presence, and Jesus, through his word, speaks life into me. The psalmist is reflecting that God has given us his voice to show how devoted he is to us. We could say that the entirety of scripture is God's love song to us, is God's love song to his people. And so the psalmist is responding to that devotion saying, I will be in your presence. Your word is a path to your presence and life itself. And so I want to unpack this a little further. And so there in your note sheet, we've got a section from the New Testament, 2 Timothy. But if you've got your Bible or your app, I'm going to ask you to actually turn there. So if you would, turn to 2 Timothy 3 in the New Testament. Now, as you're turning there, let me set up a little bit of context. So 2 Timothy is a very unique letter in the New Testament. It was written by a man named the Apostle Paul, who's one of the key leaders in the early movement of Jesus. He wrote the majority of the letters we have in the New Testament. And at this point in his life, Paul is imprisoned and he is facing death. He is going to die shortly after sending this letter out. And this letter is addressed to a young leader named Timothy, who not only had been a key partner of Paul, but had become a surrogate son. And so throughout 2 Timothy, the tone of this letter is very parental, but it's also in a sense a last will and testament as Paul is handing off his ministry, as he is saying, my season is ending. Timothy, yours is beginning, and remember your foundation. And another piece of context that's key is at this point in history, the church of Jesus, the movement of Jesus is in a very difficult season. Christ followers are facing severe persecution, both culturally, socially, politically. They're facing severe hardship. And so what Paul is writing to Timothy is remind the Christ followers of what we're going to look at of this truth, because if you root yourselves in this truth, no matter the season, you will not only survive, but you will thrive in it. And so with that, let's, I'm going to read this out. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed. Would you underline and highlight that? All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for, teach, for re- teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped Now that's you, servant of God. And think about it. When our seasons change, do we often feel unequipped to face them? Don't we often feel as if I don't have the training to face what is coming coming at me? And so again, what is Paul saying? When we root ourselves in Scripture, God is going to give us what we need to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
And the key phrase is God breathed. Again, Paul is reflecting the author of Psalm 119, that the Bible is not an ordinary book, but the Bible is a supernatural work of God. To use the language of God breathe, Paul is using the same language we see in Genesis chapter 2 when it says that God breathed life into Adam. To say that the Bible is God-breathed means that within it, the voice of God has the authority to do what only the king can do, and that is to give life. To declare and worship that the Bible is God-breathed, again, is mirroring what we read in Psalm 119, and it is declaring that through the written word of God, we will experience the life that only King Jesus can give. And as he expands our, or gives us a new paradigm, as he expands our vision, he goes on to list three key ways in which the Bible gives us life. The first one he said is teaching. And so what does that mean? The Bible teaches us the truth about who God is. The Bible shatters our filters when we see God as he truly is, as king, as massive, as untamed. We receive life through that. If we go back two weeks ago, again to Psalm 29, we looked at the power, the majesty of God. And if you remember, it ends with that God gives his people strength and peace. And when we see who God truly is, we received life through that. The Bible also teaches us who we are because of who God is. That often we have a very low view of ourselves. And when we go to the Lord, he casts a bigger vision for us in our lives than we could possibly imagine. And that's found in his word. The second way that Paul lists out that the Bible gives us life is through rebuking us. That the Bible calls us to repent of where we are sinning, of where we are rebelling against God, of what strongholds we have built because that sin and rebellion separates us from God and leads us away from life. Now I got to camp on this one for a little bit because I don't like this one. And I'm willing to bet that I'm not alone in this, right? And when I think about that, when I think of when someone in my life has rebuked me, I realize that I don't take rebuke well. Do you? Because when I get rebuked, it hurts. When I get rebuked, I get angry. When I get rebuked, I slip into what I call Dre lawyer mode, in which I begin to try to justify my sin. Why is me being wrong in this area right? And why would God be okay with that? And the reality is, I feel a mix of all of those emotions, regardless of who's doing the rebuking. 
I feel that if a, if a family member, if a spouse or a parent or a dear friend or a spiritual mentor or a life group leader, these are people that I know are for me and have my best interests at heart. When they rebuke me, I feel those emotions. I feel those same emotions when God himself rebukes me. When through his word, when through a time of silence or worship, when God is going, what are you doing in this area? I find myself falling into the same emotional traps. Let me illustrate it this way. One of the strengths of my personality and me as a leader is that I'm very planned out. I'm good at thinking strategically. I think through plans. I think through scenarios. I could work through schedules very, very well. One of the biggest weaknesses and character flaws that I have as a person is that I am very planned out. (laughs) And for many of us, the truth is that often some of the weaknesses we struggle with the most are our strengths just overdone, aren't they? And so let me give you an example just in recent history of how this played out and how I didn't respond to a good rebuking well. And so you've heard me say before, I've got three kids, and any parent will let you know that getting your kids out of the house in the morning is chaos, is absolute chaos. And so I have a plan and I have an agenda because especially there are certain mornings in which I have to get both my boys to certain locations, that is very time sensitive. And so this one particular morning, we're already behind schedule. And one area of weakness in me is that I don't like surprises. I don't like the unplanned and it rattles me. It frustrates me. I get angered easily by that because I'm losing control in those situations. As a quick sidebar, that's why this series about change was so easy for me to write because I need this as much as anybody else. And so we're late. I'm trying to get my boys in the car. I'm throwing waffles at them, just trying to get them fed. And my five-year-old daughter sees me and goes, Daddy, give me a hug and kiss before you leave. And my emotional response is, this is not in the agenda. (laughs) But I concede, and I go, and I hug her, and I kiss her. And then walking up is my wife who goes, me too. I would love a hug and a kiss. And now I get frustrated. And now I roll my eyes, I let out an audible huff, and I proceed to give my wife the worst kiss in all of human history. Because all I'm thinking of is this is placing me behind. Now again, let's think about this. My wife of 13 years is asking for her husband to show a physical sign of affection and I'm bothered because it is not in the plan. And so later that evening, my wife beautifully addressed it. But she was very honest with me that it's not just about what happened that morning, but this is a route to other things like this. And she told me that this is a deeper issue, 
that you have a plan and you're good at making these plans, but when things go to plan, you become really rattled and frustrated. She was very lovingly telling me that when things go unplanned, you become a jerk. And if we think about it, let's think of it from a logical, legal point of view. All of the evidence is pointing to her being unequivocally correct, right? But emotionally, I don't want to accept it. I'm angry and I'm hurt. Why would you say that? I'm just trying to do something good for our kids. Why would you say that? Like, we have a time schedule. They need to make it to school in daycare. I began to try to justify it going on, and it was through her that the Lord began to rebuke me, began to lead me to his word and go, Dre, what are you doing? And the Lord showed me that this was a false idol in my life, that me wanting to control what I had justified in my head as being a good thing was really something I was trying to find value and worth in. What my wife and what the Lord was doing through that rebuke was showing me what you think you're finding life in is actually taking you away from it. And so it didn't feel good. I didn't agree with it. I didn't handle it well, but what did the Lord do through that holy rebuke? He led me to real life. And so Christ follower rhetorically, is there an area in which the Lord is rebuking you, in which he wants you to experience life through it? Is there an area of sin that you've been holding on to, that you haven't been aware of, that you've been justifying, that you have been finding value and worth in, whether it's been an area of anger, unloving attitudes of how you use your language, both verbal and written, whether it's been an area of control over your finances, over your schedule, over your life plan and your purpose, whether it's been an area of a sexual ethic in which something you're trying to find, uh, you're trying to find worth through a type of sexual relationship that is not honoring God, whether it's an area of how you see your kids or how you see yourself as a parent, whatever it may be, is there an area in which the Lord is rebuking you in and are you willing to see the bigger picture that God breathed means that through that rebuke, he wants you to experience more of life. And then the third area that Paul focuses on is in correcting us. And this ties into rebuke, but often a biblical correction is to give us a bigger vision. Often the problem with our lives is our vision is way too small. And so in particular, Paul is writing this about God's word because he's saying, Christ followers, we need a bigger vision for what the scriptures are. Those are scriptures, again, as Psalm 119 declares, are not a soulless book of rules, but the scriptures are the path to Jesus himself. That to love and honor and commit and be devoted to the scriptures is to love and honor, commit and be devoted to Jesus himself. In John chapter chapter 1, it refers to Jesus as not only having been there from the very beginning, but of being the Word himself. Again, I like how Kevin DeYoung puts it in your note sheet. 
what we believe and feel about the word of God are absolutely crucial. If for no other reason than that they should mirror what we believe and feel about Jesus. Our desire, delight, and dependence on the words of Scripture do not grow inversely to our desire, delight, and dependence on Jesus Christ. The two must always rise together. And so how Scripture leads us to life is that it reveals that often in our spiritual walk, an indicator of how we truly see Jesus is how we think and act about God's Word. Often how we think and act about the Bible itself is an indicator of how we really feel about Jesus himself. And so scripture is trying to lead us to new life. And so as we wrap up, not just this message, but as we wrap up this entire series, that again, something we've been saying each week is that these Psalms are not solely meant to inform but these psalms are meant to lead us to be transformed. And so with that, I want to talk about two key ways in which we can learn to root ourselves deeper into God's word. And so there you have a section titled, Rooting Yourself in His Voice. And your first fill-in is this. How do you currently see God's word? And so this isn't necessarily a question you're going to answer in this moment. But I want to implore you, would you take some time today? Would you take some time to go before the Lord and think about what is your honest starting point? How do you currently see God's word? And these aren't in your note sheet, but let me give you a couple of markers that you can use for that. One, ask yourself, is the word important to you? And how you can gauge that is, do you spend time in it? And with it, your schedule often reflects what your priorities are. And so when it comes to the word of God and it comes to your one-on-one -on -one rhythms, is the word important enough for you to make time and effort to, to be in it and with it? The second indicator is, is the word an authority? Can the word of God, has it changed your mind? Has it led you to a place of repentance? Has it called you to a new place of obedience? Has the word of God ever vehemently disagreed with you? Has the word of God ever called you to a new, to a new area of life? So reflect on those two because those two are great why questions. If the word is not important or if the word is not in authority, reflect on why is that? Because that's our starting point and that leads to the second question, the second fill-in, how is the Lord expanding your sight? To change how we see the voice of God to change how we see his written word does not happen from us trying harder. To change how we see the voice of God happens from going into his presence and he, him transforming us. And so the Lord is calling each and every one of us, 
whether you have a high view of the word or you don't, to experience new and deeper life through a deeper commitment in his voice. And so Rocky Peak, are you willing to go before him and listen to what he has to say? And so practically speaking, I want to encourage you to take the steps we've been doing throughout this whole series. Last week, we introduced the concept of finding or creating an environment in which you can have some unrushed and uninterrupted time before the Lord. And so again, applying that this week, find some time before the Lord in which you are uninterrupted, in which you are unrushed, and go before the Lord and read these sections of Psalm 119 and listen to what he wants to say to you about his word. Be open to the transformation he has for you through expanding your sight. And so as we transition out of this time of teaching, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. And as we go into this next time of song, if you notice the tables around this room, we're also going to enter into a time of communion. And what I love about communion is that communion does not need to be a somber, mournful affair. Communion is a celebration. Communion is a declaration that Jesus is king, that Jesus reigns above all, and that the king is with us in every season. And so it is a perfect act for us to close this series with is as you go before the communion tables, if you have given your life to Jesus, if you are a son and daughter, this is an act for you as you go before these tables as you remember the body and the blood that was sacrificed for us let us take it to declare that no matter what changes in our life Jesus never will and his victory is complete for all of eternity and so as we go into this time I'm going to pray and then I'm going to release us to go into this. As always, we're a big family. And so make sure that you have patience and godly love with one another as we go to the different tables. But let this be an opportunity in which you listen to what the Lord has to say to you. Let's pray. Jesus, when it comes to your word, I want to see it. I want to treasure it, I want to depend on it, and I want to prioritize it as you do. You found joy through the written word of God. You found purpose and power through the written word of God. You declared it as a praise and as a gift to all those around you. You called it out and quoted it in your darkest and most, suffer and most difficult seasons of suffering. Father, to you, Jesus, to you, there was no doing life without God's voice in his written word. And that is the type of person you call us each to be. Jesus, thank you that we have that same word. 
Thank you that we have that same authority, that it is God-breathed, that it is what gives us life through it. Thank you that it does it in multiple ways, through teaching us more about who you are, through rebuking us. As painful as that can be, it leads us to greater life, through correcting us, through giving us a bigger vision so that we could be thoroughly equipped to face any season life throws at us. And so Jesus, I pray that this would be the beginning of a new dialogue, of a new joy, a new passion, a new spiritual season in which you transform how we see your word and we begin to root ourselves in your voice found within. Thank you for this time of communion in which we celebrate your victory, your power. You are the one true king. The enemy has been defeated. Sin and death has been defeated. You rose again and you are king forever and ever. Thank you for this time, Jesus, in your son's name. We all said, amen.